Israel and Hamas agree to a four-day pause in their fighting, and Hamas will release 50 women and children. It's Wednesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, more on the deal in the Israel-Hamas war. President Biden thanked leaders in Qatar and Egypt for negotiating the agreement. Also this hour, the troubles at X, the site formerly known as Twitter, as advertisers pull out over anti-Semitic activity. You're talking about brands that have incredible influence, where other advertisers are then going to look to them and say, is X a safe place for us to put our marketing spend? And the effort by some churches to expand the season of Advent, which is traditionally the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Maybe Advent has an integrity of its own, and it's not just a ramp up to Christmas or a countdown. Rain this morning, it'll dry out this afternoon, we'll have a high in the 50s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Pope Francis has met separately with Israeli relatives of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza and the families of Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. This comes as a temporary ceasefire is announced in exchange for the release of some hostages and prisoners. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports. Pope Francis told the faithful gathered in St. Peter's Square in Rome that during his meetings with the Israeli and Palestinian relatives of the kidnapped and the imprisoned, he felt how, quote, both sides are suffering. War does this, he said, but here we've gone beyond war. This is not war, it's terrorism. Francis asked the congregation to pray for both Israelis and Palestinians and to pray for peace. His comments come as the warring sides announced a deal. 50 of the some 240 hostages kidnapped to Gaza from Israel in the Hamas-led attack on October 7th are to be freed, and Israel is to release 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. The U.S. Coast Guard estimates more than 1 million gallons of crude oil has leaked into the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana. There is concern about the impact to endangered and threatened species. This bill was discovered Friday. Captain Kelly Denning says most of the oil leaked in the first 24 hours. The remaining oil would have persisted as dark patches, large sheens, and globules of emulsified oil, all of which have been observed by our response assets. Authorities are still trying to find the location and cause of the leak. In Alaska, people are missing in a massive landslide. It barreled down a rain-soaked mountainside and smashed into homes in a remote fishing community about 150 miles south of Juneau. The landslide is estimated to be 450 feet wide. Two children are among the three people missing. Three others were killed. To get high inflation under control, Argentina wants to replace the country currency with the U.S. dollar. But as NPR's David Gura reports, Argentina faces unique challenges to dollarizing its economy. The rate of inflation in Argentina is 142 percent on a year-to-year basis. That's more than 40 times higher than in the U.S. President-elect Javier Malay, who's a libertarian economist, wants Argentina to follow in the footsteps of Ecuador and Panama, which use the U.S. dollar. But Argentina doesn't have enough dollars in its reserves to make the switch. And economist Scott McKinney, a professor at Hobart and William Smith, says there's another problem. I don't see who would be interested in loaning them dollars at this particular point, given the amount of debt that they have built up. Argentina is also a big country, Latin America's third largest economy, which would make a transition to the dollar even more difficult. It's NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The stormy weather this morning is slowing things down at Logan Airport. The website FlightAware reports 13 flights in and out of Boston have been canceled. Nearly all of those are on Cape Air. Another two dozen flights have been delayed. The Steamship Authority says a few of its trips between Hyannis and Nantucket are canceled today because of strong winds. On the roads, state highway officials warn the busiest time today is expected to be between 2 and 6 this afternoon. Massachusetts public health officials are urging people to get an updated COVID booster. Cases are on the rise ahead of the holiday season. Wastewater data shows COVID levels rose 93 percent in Boston over the past two weeks. Health officials tell the Boston Globe people should take a test before gathering for the holidays if they're feeling sick. Really, the, the biggest missing piece to move this forward is funding. Uh, the MBTA does not have enough capital funding to, uh, to address. Transit advocates are applauding efforts to speed up the process of electrifying the commuter rail. The MBTA previously committed to electrifying the system but didn't lay out a timeline. Now lawmakers are considering legislation to have that work complete by the end of 2035. Jared Johnson heads the local transit advocacy nonprofit Transit Matters. He applauds the goal but wonders how it'll be accomplished. Really, the the biggest missing piece to move this forward is funding. Uh, the MBTA does not have enough capital funding to uh, to address the the existing uh, maintenance needs, um, let alone start this planning effort. The T has not put a cost estimate on the proposal. Today marks 60 years since President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The JFK Presidential Library in Dorchester is commemorating the day with a series of musical performances and special exhibits. Library Director Alan Price says that includes a special public display of the American flag that was draped over JFK's casket at his funeral. It's just an extra special time for those who do not have a living memory of President Kennedy to come to the library and come to a better understanding of his life and legacy. And for those who do have a living memory, it's a somber day of remembrance. Visitors will be able to sign two memorial books on display at the exhibit. Entry to the JFK Library is free today. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is forecasting a warmer-than-average winter here in the Northeast. Scientists say the warmer weather will be driven by climate change and an El Nino. That's a normal cycle of warming in the Pacific Ocean. Scott Whittier with the National Weather Service says that doesn't mean we won't see snow and cold temperatures. Absolutely. Even though the long-term trend is... uh a warming climate, there is a lot of variability. Sometimes uh, the variability is actually increased due to these climate trends. For example, last year was the fifth warmest winter on record in Boston, but the city also experienced temperatures in the negative double digits for the first time since the 1950s. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. 
Tonight, the Celtics are back home to play the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bruins are on the road to skate with the Florida Panthers. Rain throughout the morning today. It'll be heavy at times. The showers will start tapering off early this afternoon. The high today will be in the lower 50s. Clearing overnight with a low around 40. Sunny and windy tomorrow near 50. Sun and clouds for Friday in the low 40s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Some of the hostages held by Hamas in Gaza could soon be reunited with their families. Just hours ago, the Israeli government voted to approve a prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas. That's the militant group that runs the Gaza Strip whose fighters attacked Israel on October 7th. The deal includes the release of 50 hostages captured by Hamas in exchange for a four-day pause in fighting and the release of 150 Palestinian women and children held by Israel. Brett McGurk is on the line with us to tell us more. He is the White House coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. Good morning. This is welcome news on the eve of our Thanksgiving holiday. Good. Good morning, Michelle. No, it is. It is. It's. It's good news, and it's. Um, it's about five weeks of really painstaking work, uh, led by President Biden at fourteen engagements with Prime Minister Netanyahu on this uh, hostage deal discussed every time uh, he's spoken with President Sisi uh, three times, the Emir of Qatar uh, about three times. Uh, and we've all been very much engaged on this. But I have to say, uh, until we see the hostages come home, uh, nobody here is uh, sitting quietly. Mm, I can understand that. Are Americans among the hostages who are expected to be released as part of this initial exchange? Well, we anticipate the first uh, phase of this is 50 uh, women and children. Uh, Hamas, after uh, a lot of effort, and frankly, Hamas is under an awful lot of pressure, uh, provided a list of 50 uh, women and children that it says it is holding uh, who are uh, alive, and those 50 will come out, and we anticipate. And um, uh, one of those will be a three-year-old girl named Abigail. Uh, her birthday is actually Friday. She'll turn four on Friday. Uh, and two other American American citizens, adult women. Do you have any sense of or any information about, any intelligence about the condition of the hostages, the women and children, but frankly, all of them? Unfortunately, Michelle, we have very little. Um, we have very little. And uh, part of the difficulty of this negotiation was that Hamas uh, really insisted on on a full ceasefire, uh, in which case they then promised uh, that they would release some hostage, hostages without any even guarantee. And so the demand was we need, um, we, we need some proof identifying criteria for uh, the women and children. So we're going to start there. Hmm. And finally, we got that for the 50. Uh, we anticipate the way this deal is structured and incentivizes additional releases. So 50, the 50 women and children I mentioned will come out um, over the first four days. And it's four days of a full uh, humanitarian pause. So all the fighting stops. Uh, we're likely to see a real surge of humanitarian assistance, which, which the ceasefire uh, here uh, enables. Uh, and then for every additional 10 hostages that Hamas can release, of course, there's about uh, well over 200. Uh, the the pause will continue. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. I was going to ask about that. I mean, the, the pa- four days, in, in, is that enough to assure aid workers and others that they can actually get hostages out safely and that they can get aid in? And as you know, as I'm sure you know better than all of us, that there have been casualties even in places where the civilians in Gaza were told to seek shelter. They were told to go south, and yet there's been massive destruction in the south. So the question is, do you think this pause is sufficient to to assure all those uh, that conditions are met? 
Well, I have to say, Michelle, we are working. Uh, I just got back from the region. I was in Cairo meeting with our USAID chief and others and David Satterfield, our uh, humanitarian coordinator. We're working every day to get as much humanitarian aid into Gaza as possible, uh, even separate from this deal. But the pause in fighting, and we've been working uh, to this point, uh, the pause in fighting does enable uh, those efforts to really uh, increase significantly and set some things up that we have not been able to. Some border crossings we've been wanting to use, particularly to get trucks out of Gaza, uh, have been under uh, regular shelling from Hamas. Uh, so that will stop, and it should uh, increase the, the flow. Uh, but look, four days is four days, so you can do more uh, with more time. And the onus for more time right now uh, is on Hamas. So if Hamas produces uh, additional hostages, and they have given indications uh, to Qatar and to the Egyptians uh, that they will, they're prepared to do that. Uh, the pause here uh, will continue. Does, the, does this agreement, is it contingent upon the hostages being healthy, being unharmed? Very good question. Uh, we negotiated very strongly, and I have to say uh, this went on for some time, uh, that uh, the 50 in the first phase, uh, these will be handed over. Uh, they'll be alive, and I wouldn't say well. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a a five-year-old daughter, and it uh, kind of is mind-boggling to even consider. It's just horrific yeah, absolutely. because all the children caught in this tragedy, but mm-hmm. particularly a three-year-old girl whose parents were murdered by Hamas on October 7th. Mm-hmm. So it is. I can't it imagine is. the condition, but alive, yes, certainly. And, and speaking of children, the Gaza Health Ministry says more than 13,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the Hamas attack on the 7th, but that also includes thousands of children. Is there more that the U.S. could do to protect these very innocent civilians? Or to persuade Israel to do so, to take steps to pers- to protect them. Uh, certainly, we uh, we we want to protect all innocent life. Uh, Hamas. Uh, we want to separate Hamas from the civilian population. It is extremely difficult uh, when Hamas is using civilian infrastructure and, in its own words, uses the civilians of Gaza uh, effectively to try to protect themselves. Uh, this is an extremely difficult endeavor, but look, everybody working on this, honestly, from the president on down, I just saw him yesterday, Jake Sullivan, Bill Burns, our whole team, Tony. Uh, it's a it's a horrific uh, human uh, tragedy with all the human beings caught up in this. Um, but we have to remind ourselves Hamas started this war. This would not be going on if on October 7th, Hamas did not send about 2,000 okay. terrorists across the border to murder uh, 1,200 Israelis. Brett McGurk is the White House coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. Mr. McGurk, thank you for speaking with us. I do hope that you will have some opportunity to celebrate the holiday with your family. Thank you so much, Michelle. Happy Thanksgiving. The families of the hostages captured by Hamas have waited six excruciating weeks for news of them, especially about if or when their loved ones will be free, as you've just heard. Boaz Azili is among those who are waiting. He is a professor at American University here in Washington, D.C. His cousin Aviv Azili and his cousin's wife, Liat, have been missing since Hamas torched the kibbutz where they live on October 7th. And Boaz Azili is with us now. Good morning. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Good morning, Michelle. What, what a day. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you heard anything about the location or safety of your cousin and his wife? No, we, we haven't heard anything since uh, October 7. Uh, we just know that they are uh, disappeared from their home and their home was burned and uh, there's no sign of body. Uh, we know that his phone was geolocated to Gaza. That's all we know. So we hope that uh, as part of this deal, at least we get some more information. 
whether they there they're there whether they're alive hmm. you do for, forgive me for asking this way I, I I assume you have hope that they survived the attack on the kibbutz yes yes uh, we be, we believe that they survive may I ask your thoughts on the terms of this deal what you've been hearing so far the exchange of hostages for Palestinian prisoners in Israel the the incentive to release more hostages women and children first obviously but then incentives to to release more what what are you, what are your thoughts about it so you know I'm not quite objective being being a family member but I think so so first of all you Every hostage that is released it's it's good it's very good in particular the children that uh, will be released that will be wonderful it's just been heart-wrenching for their families and, and everybody uh, as far as I know uh, men are not included in uh, in this deal uh, so my cousin Aviv uh, will not be back uh, at least in the first uh, phase. If Liat will be among the the people who released that's that's really a blessing uh, but I really hope that the deal will be could be expanded that they'll use the the pause or ceasefire whatever you want to call it to expand the deal and to release all of the hostages and, and no price is too high to pay for for the life of so many people. I know that Aviv and Liat have children. May I ask, where, where are they now? How are they coping with this? As you can imagine, it's extremely hard. Yes, they have three children. They, they are young adults. Uh, and they are uh, in a lot, in a hotel where they were evacuated from the kibbutz. Uh, two of them were at the kibbutz at the time of the of the attack one of them basically held the the handle for the safe room for many hours while Hamas was in the house they stole everything from the house but they didn't torture it uh, fortunately so they're they're in they're basically uh, refugees internally displaced uh, at, at this point and they they waiting for their parents they don't know if they're going to uh, to see them again if they're ever going to hug them again I'm so sorry, sorry. it's it is beyond words but before I I let you go may I ask is there something you particularly would want the negotiators to know as they continue to try to secure the release of the hostages you know I I just want to say that uh, Uh, in addition to the to the hostages we know that the price of civilian Palestinian lives is, is terrible uh, really terrible uh, and uh, even at our peace loving uh, people they they are peace advocates they're not I want to tell the Palestinians that these are not your enemies mm-hmm. we all need to look ahead and uh, and they are you Two nations two people in this small land and, and neither of them is going anywhere so yeah so we need to start to think about peaceful solution that is boss Zili his cousin Aviv and his cousin's wife Liat are believed to be hostages of Hamas in Gaza mr. Atzili my my deepest wishes for you, the safety of your family and for your well-being and for for peace 
This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how North Korea is taking advantage of global divides and unrest to make a strategic shift in its foreign policy. It's 720. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And The Huntington, with The Heart Sellers. Recent Asian immigrants, Jane and Luna, run into each other in the grocery store on Thanksgiving in 1973 and find they have much in common. A new play by Lloyd Suh, directed by May Adralis. Now through December 23rd at the Calderwood Pavilion. HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Scott Tong. It all started 100 years ago with a mouse. Mickey first graced the silver screen in the Disney animated short Steamboat Willie. The first cartoon with moving pictures and sound to go with them. It was jaw-dropping. It was, dare I say it when I talk about Disney, it was magic. Disney at 100. Next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Rain and gusty winds this morning. Showers taper off early this afternoon. We'll have a high in the low 50s. Tonight, temperatures fall to around 40, and it'll be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, a sunny Thanksgiving with a high in the low 50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, now playing exclusively in theaters. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. In Wisconsin, cheese is king. So when the chance came up to become a cheese taster, 250 people applied for five open jobs. Their goal is to help cheesemakers create a creamier cheddar or a more melty mozzarella. Mayan Silver from member station WUWM in Milwaukee has this report. In a state where cheese is a big business, getting the taste just right is a serious undertaking. Training for professional cheese tasters teaches them how to identify flavors and speak the same lingo. So instead of fancy crackers, grapes, and prosciutto, laid out in front of the five taste testers, there are vials of liquids with labels like buttery and rancid, sample cups with foam to measure textures, and spit cups. This will be your guys' first quiz. (laughs) Tell me what you thought basic taste-wise. Brandon Prohaska. The leader of this training at UW-Madison Center for Dairy Research has each student pluck a cube of Colby from a tray. The conversation here immediately gets pretty sciencey. You can get diacetyl in beer sometimes, and this was closer to like what I feel like I'd taste in beer when there's like a butteriness to it. Okay. That's Brian Hansen, one of UW's new tasters. 
Teacher Prohaska says the goal during these sessions is to get the real human reaction to eating cheese in a methodical and systematic way. The panelists identify a cheese's traits like creamy or bitter and rate their intensity. That data can be used by graduate students, cheese producers, and pizza makers. So we're thinking of a lot of different practical applications, things like how do we extend the shelf life of a product? How do we make something have an even better flavor? Or maybe there's a new technology coming out that's not quite you know, replicating the flavor people expect. So armed with a notebook and a color wheel, taste tester Kelly Cluck learns how to identify flavors. Maybe not so hard for an aficionado who has a few wine tasting certifications. The thing that's great about this, I feel like I've taken a hobby and I'm actually getting paid to do it now. When Prohaska sends chunks of full-fat mozzarella around the table, they talk about what it tastes like. Again, just kind of that vinegary, citrusy kind of note. Lemon besides grassy. The lemon grassy, yeah. And at the university, there's a protocol for everything. When to chew, when to hold and release your nose to block or pick up aromas from the cheese. It's not exactly what taster Carolyn Haswell expected. I actually signed up because I love pizza, I love making pizza, and it's like, oh, I know all the types of pizza around the country, and then I come here and it's like, it's experimental cheese, enjoy. When they do taste pizzas, no eating the crust, just the cheese, please. This is so good, warm. I'll let you know when it's ready to taste. One pan comes out of the oven, then another and another. They even use a ruler to test the stretchiness of the mozzarella. It's an efficient way to put the cheese that could end up on your next delivery order through the science lab. For NPR News, I'm Ayan Silver in Madison. If you are the chef in your house, then you already know Thanksgiving is probably the most carefully planned and highest pressure meal of the year. But sometimes cooks have to improvise at the last minute, but the result can be amazing. That's what happened at a small bakery just outside Zion National Park in Utah, where a mysterious dessert has become a tourist attraction unto itself. David Condos with member station KUER tells the sweet story. Inside the Bumbleberry Bakery, a steady stream of tourists walk up to get a taste of local history. Visitors Callum and Amanda Nelson from California picked two pieces of pie a la mode. The ingredients of this gooey purple filling are classified, but after scooping up a bite, Callum takes a guess. It's like blackcurrant and blackberry and something else. <laughs> the mystery ingredient. The mystery ingredient, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This secret recipe started by accident in the mid-1960s when the restaurant was run by Grandma Constance Madsen. Here's how her granddaughter Melanie Madsen tells the story. One day, a big bus of tourists rolled in unexpectedly, and Grandma didn't have enough of any single pie filling to feed the hungry crowd. There was never such thing as being closed. If there was someone who came and hadn't eaten, it didn't matter if the stove had been turned off and the oven had shut down, she would go fix something. So Grandma bumbled together a combination of whatever berries were on hand and served the pies. Melanie says word spread quickly from one tourist bus to the next. By the end of that summer, bumbleberry pie was a thing. It even had its own song. Have you been to Bumbleberry Valley? Melanie and two of her siblings, Richard Madsen and Holly Rowland, remember their grandma would call them over to sing it for customers while they ate. They were young kids back then, between ages four and six, but they could still tell their family's restaurant was a big deal, with long lines out front and visitors from all over the world. Won't you come 
to Bumbleberry Valley. <laughs> it's been a long time. But the business didn't stay in the Madsen family forever. Stan Smith's family took the reins in 1972, and he takes his work as guardian of the confidential berry blend very seriously. When somebody asks what a bumbleberry is, a bumbleberry is a purple and binkleberry that grows on a giggle bush. There's a fanciful story that goes with it, too. Cartoons of little creatures who harvest the burple and binkle berries from those giggle bushes. Now, some customers get frustrated that he won't reveal the ingredients. But Smith says they're missing the point. It's magic. I mean, you know, especially nowadays in the, in the world where everything's so chaotic and people are so spiteful and hateful. What's a little joy? A lot has changed in the five decades since his family bought this place. Visitorship to neighboring Zion National Park has jumped fivefold, and the bumbleberry business has boomed. Smith says they've gone through up to 13 tons of berries in a single year. But the pie, that's the same as always. Recipe does not change. No matter how big of a celebrity the bumbleberry becomes, for Melanie Madsen and her family, it'll always be a reminder of grandma. Each year around the holidays, they still get together and bake the pie. It's oh, yeah. tradition. Yeah. They've tried tweaking the recipe, but yeah. in the end, she and says nothing can top yes. Grandma's original. <laughs> For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Springdale, Utah. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Today's top stories are next, including the agreement for Hamas to release some Israeli hostages in exchange for Israel's release of imprisoned Palestinians. It's 729. When you get news alerts all day, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, Devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause in fighting. During that window, Hamas is to release 50 hostages taken during last month's deadly assault in southern Israel. In exchange, Israel will release 150 Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. Peter Lerner is a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces. We know Hamas have a dubious uh, record with regard to holding fire in the past. They've utilized uh, these types of pauses in the past to conduct more killing and abduction. He was speaking to Sky News. Sam Altman is back as CEO of OpenAI with a new board. The San Francisco-based company announced the move last night, days after the previous board fired Altman. His ouster prompted hundreds of OpenAI employees to sign a letter threatening to resign. NPR's Derek Kerr has more. 
One of the board members, who's also a co-founder of OpenAI and previously supported firing Altman, he started to backpedal. His name is Ilya Sutskever, and he also signed that letter. He said he regretted his participation in the board's actions and would do everything he could to reunite the company. And as for now, he'll remain an employee at OpenAI, but he will no longer serve on the board. After his ouster, Microsoft announced it had hired Altman to lead a new AI research team. This is NPR News. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Rideshare drivers in Massachusetts are expected to present their certified voter signatures to the Secretary of State's office today. That'll secure a spot on next year's ballot for a ballot question. The question could grant drivers with apps like Uber and Lyft the right to unionize. But rideshare drivers could win union rights before Election Day. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering a proposal that would grant them those rights. A Lowell city councilor who faces domestic abuse charges was absent last night from a city council meeting. Members of the council tell the Lowell Sun they're asking Corey Robinson to step away from his position until the legal issues are resolved. Robinson is accused of assaulting a woman at a home in Drake last week. He says he's innocent and will not step down. Tanglewood is the Boston Symphony Orchestra's summer home in the Berkshires. It's making its Hollywood debut in Bradley Cooper's new movie, Maestro. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports the film opens today in New York and Los Angeles. In May 2022, Bradley Cooper's film crew descended on Tanglewood to recreate scenes from 20th century conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein's life. The charismatic musician spent summers in Lenox, first as a student in 1940, then as faculty. BSO director of production Jake Morshell worked with Cooper's production and says authenticity was the goal. Anyone who's been to Tanglewood will see those scenes and immediately know that that's where it was shot. And it's great that we can showcase this to the rest of the world. Maestro comes to Boston December 1st before streaming on Netflix on the 20th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Bruins will wrap up their quick trip to the Sunshine State tonight as they visit the Florida Panthers. The Celtics will be at the Garden tonight as they take on the Milwaukee Bucks. Showers this morning should dry up by this afternoon. Highs will be in the low 50s, around 40 tonight and mostly cloudy. It clears up overnight for a sunny day tomorrow. It'll be in the low 50s on Thanksgiving Day. It's 46 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. North Korea claims to have successfully launched its first spy satellite. Some observers believe the North received technical assistance from Russia. And as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, that could be part of a major shift in Pyongyang's foreign policy. 
When North Korean leader Kim Jong-un visited a Russian spaceport in September, his host, President Vladimir Putin, indicated Russia was willing to help North Korea with satellite technology. South Korea says that since the summit, North Korea has sent Russia more than a million artillery shells for use in Ukraine. More broadly, Kim Jong-un has called for North Korea to play a larger role in an anti-U.S. bloc of nations, in what he described as a new Cold War. Yi Ho-ryong, a researcher at the Korea Institute for Defense Analyses, a government think tank, says this recalls the 1950-1953 Korean War, when Russia, China, and North Korea faced off against the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. North Korea stresses this three-versus-three new Cold War structure and advancing their strategic relationships with China and Russia, because that structure is advantageous to North Korea in the short term to create strategic space. He says Pyongyang also wants Russian economic aid to counter the effect of international sanctions. Pak Hyong-jung, a researcher emeritus at the Korea Institute for National Unification, a government think tank, says that for Pyongyang, that would be a windfall. The war between Russia and Ukraine and the intensifying competition between the U.S. and China opened up the possibilities for cooperation with China and Russia. So this is, for North Korea, a kind of coincidental salvation. Observers had previously assumed that Kim Jong-un was building up his arsenal just to get more leverage over the U.S. at the negotiating table. That scenario now seems unlikely. Last year, Kim told his country's parliament that the country's nuclear status is irreversible. There will never be such a thing as our abandonment of nuclear weapons or denuclearizing first, he said, nor will there be any negotiations or bargaining chips to this end. Kim's shift in strategy, analysts believe, began with a walk. Sometimes you have to walk, and uh, this was just one of those times, and I'll let Mike uh, speak to that for a couple of minutes, please. In 2019, then-President Donald Trump walked out of a summit with Kim Jong-un in Vietnam after rejecting Kim's proposal of sanctions relief in exchange for partial denuclearization. For Trump to not only not agree... But to leave, to walk out, was an enormous blow to Kim, I think, both personally and as a symbol of his, the aura of his leadership. Robert Carlin is a visiting scholar at Stanford University and former State Department official. He points to the 27 letters that Kim and Trump exchanged in 2018 and 2019. And this final letter he wrote really demonstrates how he thought he had been double-crossed. Trump shared the letters with journalist Bob Woodward. In the final letter, Kim wrote to Trump, If you do not think of our relationship as a stepping stone that only benefits you, then you would not make me look like an idiot that will only give without getting anything in return. Robert Carlin says North Korea's leaders now seem convinced they can no longer bargain with the U.S. and must deal with Russia and China instead. That's a major decision on their part. It's a strategic decision, and it's not going to be reversed anytime soon. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. You're already seeing Christmas trees and other holiday decor sprouting up all over the place. A lot of people want to resist the holiday creep, but some churches are taking a different tack, expanding the season known as Advent. Religion correspondent Jason DeRose tells us why it's about much more than preparing for a holiday. 
Typically, Advent is observed during the four weeks leading up to Christmas, but when he was a campus chaplain in Boston, Cameron Partridge realized how expanding Advent to seven weeks nurtured students. You know, you've got the end of the semester, you've got finals, preparation to leave for home. So Advent barely got to be observed. So this gave an opportunity to actually really be present together and to observe it together, which could be grounding in a time of great intensity. A grounding Partridge brought with him when he came to St. Aidan's Episcopal Church in San Francisco. Good morning, St. Aidan's. And welcome to Advent. The season prepares for and locates us within the coming of the divine reign, the dream of God. Partridge says that Advent theme of divine reign, rather than a simple prelude to Christmas, is more poignant this year, given the conflict in the Holy Lands. We can't pretend that everything is fine. There is tumult in the world, and it is real, and it is hard, and it is deeply affecting people. People who need assurance that Advent resists violence and earthly powers. The real emphasis of this season is on the pursuit of justice and peace. And in the world we live in right now, you can't get more relevant than that. Bill Peterson is the retired dean of the Episcopal Seminary Bexley Hall. He's been at the forefront of expanding Advent beyond anticipation of Jesus in the manger to the hope for a just and peaceful world described by the Hebrew prophets. Maybe Advent has an integrity of its own, and it's not just a ramp up to Christmas or countdown. We get all these other images of God, really, the wisdom of God, the the shepherding image, which is very different from on a throne, uh, much more humble and, and very uh, loving, if you really think about it. Methodist minister Suzanne Winona Duchesne teaches worship and preaching. She says the images of God found in Advent liturgy, wisdom, root, key, dawn, resist thinking of the divine solely as a triumphant king. Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Chicago is also ushering in the Advent theme of God's hope for the world, evident as Pastor Michelle Sevig leads worship. O God of justice and love, you illumine our way through life with the words of your Son. And evident in the way, says Pastor Craig Mueller, scripture, song, and prayer shape his congregation at Holy Trinity. It's too bad that many people equate Christianity with doctrines and beliefs in the head rather than what ritual could do to form us with the passages of time and what it means to be human. Humans formed to persevere through the sorrow of violence and rejoice in the hope of peace, says Cameron Partridge at St. Aidan's in San Francisco. Advent in its dwelling in the already and the not yet can ground and strengthen us in all of that uncertainty and help give us a sense from out of that grounding and ability to connect. Connect across difference in a war-ravaged world that's not yet the one for which God longs. Jason DeRose, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, Israel and Hamas have agreed to a pause in fighting and to a proposed deal to release at least 50 hostages seized by Hamas in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Details are ahead this morning on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening. Now the forecast, the rain is causing some flight delays this morning as a lot of people head out of town for Thanksgiving. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So let's start out with this morning. How long will this rain last? So I'd say we've got about, let's say, four hours or so, give or take, um, of the steadiest rain to come through. So from noon onward, I think we're going to see some drastic improvement in terms of the wet weather being out of here. Uh, And then after that, that's just a leftover shower or two. So a few more hours to get through in terms of the steadiest rain with some heavier elements in there. What about the winds? It's pretty windy. How long will those last? It sure is. The wind's been ramping up at the coast. We've already had some gusts over 40 miles per hour on the South Shore, Cape Ann, Cape Cod. We do have wind advisories in effect in those areas, and I anticipate the wind to still be pretty strong right on through the late afternoon. So, you know, as of early this morning, there were over a thousand customers without power already. I expect those numbers to climb, but it won't be, you know, a major event. Just some pockets of outages at the coast through the afternoon with some gusts that may top out over 50 for the outer Cape and Nantucket. Everybody else at the coast, it's like 40 to 45 miles per hour through the afternoon. And then where will we start out at tomorrow morning? So tomorrow morning for the turkey trots and the football games, it won't be that cold. I think, you know, a lot of spots will be in the upper 30s to low 40s. um, And then by the afternoon, we'll be up near 50 degrees. So it's a much quieter day overall tomorrow. The sun will be back out too. I don't expect a damaging wind tomorrow, but there will be a breeze. So this time of the year makes it feel a little brisk. The wind will gust occasionally over 20 miles per hour tomorrow afternoon. And what about the rest of the holiday weekend? So Friday looks pretty good. Sun and clouds, mid-40s. Saturday is going to be cold. I don't think we're getting out of the 30s on Saturday uh, afternoon for high temperatures. So that'll be the coldest day we've had so far in terms of daytime temperatures this fall season. We make a little bit of a rebound on Sunday, back into the 40s, and there'll be more clouds on Sunday. I do think both days look dry, so not too bad, just cold on Saturday for sure. So it sounds like maybe Thanksgiving is the the peak day of our long weekend. Definitely the peak and the peak in terms of temperature for the next several days as it looks right now. So, you know, obviously tough travel day today with so many people out and about, but I do anticipate improvement afternoon and then the wind should ease through the late afternoon and evening for everybody, including at the coastline. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rupa. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. New Englanders will have to shell out more for their Thanksgiving meal this year. Data from the American Farm Bureau Federation show that people in the region will spend an average of $64.38 to feed 10 guests. That's 25 percent higher than four years ago and $3 higher than the current national average. Joe Schmidt is director of operations for Market Basket's parent company. He says customers don't seem to be complaining. It doesn't appear that anybody's pulled back on their holiday shopping. To the contrary, it seems like people are looking forward to having a nice holiday season surrounded by family. You know, it's a a feel-good time of year for all. 
The Farm Bureau data suggests cranberries will be a bargain this year. Prices have dropped nearly 25 percent compared to last year. A local firm wants to create an eight-building development at the end of the reserved channel in South Boston. The plan filed with the Boston Planning and Development Agency includes more than 205 housing units and a life sciences building. Developers say they're also taking future flooding into account by building above what the city projects for rising sea levels in 2070. It's 747. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. There is yet more drama at X, the site formerly known as Twitter. The company is suing a media watchdog group called Media Matters. The suit was filed after the nonprofit published a report showing that certain ads had appeared next to pro-Nazi posts. Last week, a number of major companies announced that they would suspend advertising on the platform over concerns about content. Media Matters calls the suit, quote, frivolous. It's been more than a year since billionaire Elon Musk took control of the social media giant, and it has been a roller coaster since. Joining us now to tell us more about all this is Wired senior writer Lauren Good, who's been following this story. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Disney, Apple, and IBM all said that they were going to stop advertising on X after the Media Matters report and after Elon Musk retweeted a baseless anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on X last week. What's the latest on that? Are any of these advertisers suggesting that they might reconsider? People have been keeping an eye on whether the content on Twitter would change in such a way that it would deter advertisers from spending money to put their ads on X. And I think what we saw last week was a tipping point because not only were these major brands starting to notice that their ads were appearing next to incredibly concerning pro-Nazi content, but Musk himself didn't really help the matter when he endorsed a tweet that was sharing anti-Semitic theories. So this seemed like a bridge too far. And at this point, when you're talking about brands like Disney saying we're going to pause ads, you're talking about brands that have incredible influence. Some of them are actually quite big spenders on X in terms of advertising, and some just have a halo effect where other advertisers are then going to look to them and say, is X a safe place for us to put our marketing spend? How big of a blow is this, or is it any way, is there any way to know at this point? Well, it's a great question because one of the things, of course, that has changed as Elon Musk has taken over Twitter slash X is that he took the company private. And so it, the company no longer has the responsibility to report quarterly earnings. We have some market research firms and other reports suggesting that, yes, Twitter is not doing so well. But when you see this kind of... I don't want to call it an exodus, but these really big brands starting to pause and really sort of take stock of what is going on on X, that can't be good long term for Twitter. What is the basis of Elon Musk's case against media matters? I mean, has he asserted that it is false or, or does he have some other argument? 
Well, when Musk and X filed the lawsuit against Media Matters for America, they were basically alleging that this recent report from Media Matters, which showed the list of big name advertisers, you know, appearing next to anti-Semitic content on X. They said that that report was basically an attempt to quote unquote destroy the company by encouraging advertisers to pull their money. So there were actually two reports for Media Matters, right? There was the one that came on November 16th that just showed evidence of here is this problematic content that's appearing directly below or above these ads from big brands. And then there is this ongoing list that Media Matters is maintaining of more and more brands as they start to pull away from X. And so Musk had said basically immediately afterwards that he was planning to go quote unquote thermonuclear on Media Matters. We were waiting to see if the lawsuit would actually come to fruition. And in fact, on Monday, X did file this lawsuit. But it's still a little bit convoluted in terms of exactly on what basis X is filing this suit, except to say that this is an attempt, they claim it is an attempt for Media Matters to destroy Hmm. X. That's Lauren Good. She's a senior writer for Wired. Lauren, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. Thank you very much, Michelle. This is NPR News. Here with WBUR on a Wednesday, coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition, why Argentina's president-elect claims the U.S. dollar may be the cure for that country's hyperinflation. It's 7.52. WBUR supporters include The Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th lyricstage.com. Since I've set up the legacy gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org legacy. On the 60th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination, we hear from a Secret Service agent who was there that day. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The Israeli government has approved a four-day pause in fighting in Gaza. Hamas has agreed to return 50 hostages in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners by Israel. At least three people are dead and three others missing following a landslide in southeast Alaska. And chat GPT creator OpenAI is reinstating Sam Altman as its CEO following infighting at the startup. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. We have gusty winds and rain this morning. It should dry up this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 50s. Those fall to around 40 tonight, and skies will be mostly overcast, clearing overnight for a sunny Thanksgiving tomorrow. It'll be in the low 50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. On this day in 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, while riding through Dealey Plaza in his motorcade, his wife Jackie by his side. 
President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. That, of course, is the voice of Walter Cronkite. Six decades later, JFK's assassination remains a subject of fascination, mystery, and even conspiracy theories for many people, as evidenced by the documentaries and specials released this year to mark the anniversary. TV and film writer Hunter Ingram has watched all of them, and he's here with us now to tell us which ones we might want to check out. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. So, as we said, uh, JFK died six decades ago. From what you've gleaned while watching, is there any new information out there? Well, we have a lot of trickling documents that have come out since 1992. Of course, that was the, the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Act, and that was spurred by the release of Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK. And up until last year, the government was still releasing thousands of documents related to the assassination. And so um, a recent documentary was done by Oliver Stone himself. Um, JFK revisited through the looking glass, kind of sifting through those documents and trying to make sense of why they were important, why they were redacted, and how they may or may not feed into some of these conspiracy theories that have persisted for six decades. Hmm. Do they come to any conclusions? They come to the conclusion that a lot was not told to the American people. Mm. I think that was the prevailing theory. There's the talk of the magic bullet and how it doesn't add up to the single bullet theories. I mean, there's so many things that have grown from that single moment in 1963 that people are still trying to reckon with today um, on so many levels, which is why I think we see some of these documentaries coming out like this. So do you have, uh, gosh, I, in, the, in this context, I hate to use the word favorite because, you know, given the subject matter, but... Is there one or two that you would particularly recommend? Well, I think the ones that were released specifically this year, the ones that actually have come out within the last few weeks, in one case a few days, were really fascinating and, and come at the subject in a, in a different way. Um, the first one that I would suggest and the one that I really enjoyed um, was through National Geographic. They have a franchise of docuseries called One Day in America. Uh, people may have seen the night, uh, the 2021 when about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. This one uh, that came out a few weeks ago is JFK, One Day in America. And it literally follows JFK and Jackie from the morning of November 22nd, 1963, all the way through the assassination in Dallas. And then it carries through the, the manhunt for Lee Harvey Oswald and even through the night and past midnight as they're trying to get a handle on what to do with Harvey, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas. Um, that one's really fascinating because you live minute to minute. And obviously today being an anniversary might be of interest to people to get a sense of how that day unfolded. But if they want a deeper look, I think one that is um, just as fascinating was the History Channel's new documentary, Kennedy, which is eight episodes, and it digs even more deeply into his life from birth all the way to his final days. You know, obviously for some people, this, this, that day is seared in memory. I mean, you, people know where they were and what they were doing when they learned this news. But for people who don't have that memory, if they're, if they're just starting to think about it, is there one of, one of these specials, new or old, that you would recommend? Well, I think that a good compliment would probably be JFK One Day in America because you get to see the the whole day. You know, it is seared in so many Americans' minds. And for those who didn't live it, I think this is a, a way for you to understand 
the the tragedy of the day. I mean, that is something that is that is inescapable in any of these documentaries. That this was this was something that has imprinted itself in American history in the minds of those who were there. And for those who weren't, I think we are reliving them every year with documentaries like this that get to preserve that moment in a way that um, it's not going to be as if you were there, but it will give you a sense of, of why it's important and why we are still seeing the reverberations six decades later. That is Hunter Ingram. He's a freelance TV and a film writer. Hunter, thanks so much. Of course. Thank you. This is NPR News. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. It'll be held Monday, December 19th. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. It's a dark and stormy morning with gusty winds and rain expected to last through about noon. Then mostly cloudy today in the low 50s. Skies stay overcast tonight as temperatures fall to around 40. Then it clears up overnight, giving us a sunny day in the low 50s for our Thanksgiving tomorrow. It's 46 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel and Hamas agree to halt the fighting in Gaza for four days. Hamas will release 50 hostages in return for Palestinians held by Israel. It's Wednesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the deal between Israel and Hamas was in part brokered by the U.S. and may include the release of three Americans. And the justices on Wisconsin's highest court are being criticized for partisanship in a case that could reshape state voting districts. Everybody knows that the reason we're here is because there was a change in the membership of the court. You would not have brought this action if the newest justice had lost her election. Also this hour. He started his career there in many ways, and he kind of ended his career there. His last concert he conducted publicly was at Tanglewood in 1990. A new movie about Leonard Bernstein highlights his ties to the Berkshires. Windy and rainy this morning in the low 50s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. A three-year-old American girl is among the hostages being held in, by Hamas. Her parents were killed by the militants. The girl could be released in a new agreement between Israel and Hamas to pause the fighting and let 50 hostages go. Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S. brokered the deal. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on President Biden's reaction. You know, he released, Biden that is, released a statement last night welcoming the deal and thanking Qatar and Egypt for their assistance. And I'll just note, it was actually the same channel that they created that led to the release of the first U.S. hostages last month of Judith Rannon and her daughter, Natalie. It was actually their release that American officials told us gave them the confidence that the channel worked, but also that the Qataris could deliver. The agreement also includes the release of 150 Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. The former CEO of artificial intelligence startup OpenAI is returning to the job. NPR's Derek Kerr reports this comes days after he was ousted. 
After a chaotic few days for OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT, things seem to be settling down. The company announced its former CEO, Sam Altman, is returning. He was fired by the board of directors late last week. They said he hadn't been candid in his communication with them, and they could no longer trust him to lead. The about-face comes after 97% of the company's employees signed a letter threatening to quit unless Altman was reinstated and the board was dissolved. In its announcement, OpenAI now says it's creating a new board of directors to run the company. Altman posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, that he, quote, loves OpenAI and looks forward to his return. Dara Kerr, NPR News. The Biden administration will funnel $2 billion to historically disadvantaged communities to help them become more resilient to climate change. NPR's Alejandra Barunda reports. Historically disadvantaged communities have long known that they carry an unfairly heavy load of environmental costs, industrial pollution, waste dumping, and now climate change. For years, they have asked for help. Now the Environmental Protection Agency is directing $2 billion toward that goal. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan has been traveling to some of the affected communities. While on these visits, I've heard directly from residents and advocates who have been asking for resources to support the development of local solutions in their communities for years. Communities can apply for grants to help with projects like cleaning up contamination on tribal lands or helping low-income neighborhoods and towns near the border become more resilient to heat or flooding. Alejandro Borunda, NPR News. At last check, U.S. futures were trading higher. Stocks across Asia closed mostly higher today. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's a stormy morning across New England. State emergency officials report more than 3,900 power outages right now. A majority of those are on the Vineyard and in Mashpee. The storm is also slowing down the Thanksgiving travel rush at Logan Airport. The website FlightAware reports 31 delays in and out of Boston right now. Another dozen flights have been canceled. Nearly all of those are on Cape Air. On Amtrak, there are no major delays reported right now. Some 80,000 Boston-area travelers will take the train to their Thanksgiving destination. Amtrak spokesperson Jen Flanagan is recommending travelers get to their station early. Something that we really emphasize is to get to the station within probably an hour before you're expected to depart. I feel this is especially important for people that are on a train that doesn't have reserved seating. The Steamship Authority says a few of its trips today between Hyannis and Nantucket are canceled because of high winds. People affected will be rebooked on other trips. The Milton Select Board has voted to take down an Israeli flag. The town raised it after the October attack on Israel by Hamas. WBUR Simone Rios reports the flag was originally scheduled to fly until the end of this month. After hearing from an array of Muslim residents who called for officials to either raise a Palestinian flag at a town gazebo or to fly the U.S. flag alone, the select board voted three to two to take down the Israeli flag. Select board chair Mike Zulas apologized to residents who he said hadn't had a voice in town government. It seems apparent that to hang the two flags together or either of them going forward without any context for passersby or casual observers could cause more harm than good in our community. Select board member Richard Wells voted against removing the Israeli flag earlier than planned, arguing that raising it was a statement against terrorism. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Simone Rios. The police chief in Canton says she welcomes an outside review of the police department. Residents approved the review on Monday because of how the department is handling a murder investigation. Chief Helena Rafferty tells the Boston Globe an audit would end questions about corruption in the department. More than 1,200 households on the North Shore are putting Thanksgiving dinner on the table with the help of holiday food baskets from a Gloucester nonprofit. The Open Door says it's seen a 28 percent increase in visits to its two food pantries since January. Sarah Groh is the organization's director of advocacy and development. She says a lot of people on Cape Ann are struggling with high housing costs. Time and time again, we do hear people coming through our doors. You know, I used to be a donor and now I can't believe I'm here. But we have a lot of people who aren't wealthy living here. We have immigrants. We have a lot of industries that are seasonal. Grow says the Open Door distributes 3,000 meals a week. That's three times as many as before the pandemic. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. The Celtics return to the Garden tonight to face the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bruins will be in South Florida tonight to skate with the Panthers. Rain throughout the morning today. It'll be heavy at times. The showers will start tapering off early this afternoon. The high today will be in the lower 50s, clearing overnight with a low around 40. Sunny and windy tomorrow near 50. Sun and clouds for Friday in the low 40s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. After six weeks of war, Hamas and Israel have agreed to a four-day pause in the fighting. The initial stage of the deal will have Hamas release 50 people taken hostage during the group's bloody attack on southern Israel October 7th. And Israel has agreed to release 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees held in Israeli jails. The agreement comes after weeks of complex negotiations mediated by Qatar, Egypt, and the United States. But we still don't know what's happened to many of the hostages, and the war is not over. NPR's Dan Daniel Estrin is with us now from Tel Aviv to tell us more. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Michelle. So tell us about the outlines of the deal. Israel and Hamas have both published their versions of this deal, which has been on the table and been negotiated now for weeks. The first stage of the deal is that there will be four days of a pause in fighting. And during that time, there will be four different hostage exchanges. So about 50 Israelis will be released in total during those days, about 10 at a time. At the same time, 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees will be released from Israeli jails. Those prisoner releases will be spread out uh, among the four stages. And we're talking about women and minors from both sides. Now, during those four days that the war is paused, Hamas says that Israel has promised to halt its flyovers and drones over northern Gaza, where there have been uh, the most intense fighting. And that will take place for just several hours a day. And we understand that that is to allow Hamas to try to locate all of the hostages, not all of the hostages being held in Gaza are being held by Hamas. Some are are being held by other militant factions or even by private Palestinian citizens. And during those four days of uh, a pause in fighting, Israel has also committed to allowing in more humanitarian supplies to Gaza. Now, part two of the deal is Israel offering an incentive to Hamas. It's saying if Hamas 
releases an additional 50 Israeli hostages, then Israel will agree to release another 150 Palestinians. For every 10 Israelis released, according to this offer, there will be another 24 hours pause in the hostilities. But this entire deal expires in 10 days, according to Israel, and after which the war will resume. Hmm. Do we have a sense of when this pause is actually going to start? It's not going to start until probably Thursday morning at the earliest. And that is until, you know, the Israeli law requires this period of time for objections, a 24-hour period where Israelis in the public can review the list of Palestinian prisoners and detainees who are slated for release. That list has already been published. And uh, that 24-hour period allows Israelis to petition against their release. They can go to the Supreme Court. We've already heard some groups representing Israeli victims of Palestinian attacks saying that they will oppose. But historically, the Supreme Court doesn't block these kinds of deals, and there is major support in, in the Israeli public for this release. So bottom line, until this kicks in as early as tomorrow morning, the war continues. How are Israelis and Palestinians taking in this news? I, I might imagine there might be different views. Really mixed emotions, Michelle. I spoke to an Israeli comedy writer, Chena Vigdori, whose wife and daughter are in Gaza. Here's what he said. I am calm. I am calm because I know that there is hope, but I'm also calm because I know that the hope can be shattered at any moment. I also spoke to a Palestinian father of a detainee, Yusuf Afghani. His daughter, Aisha, is in Israeli jail. He said this. He said he was very happy for his daughter's release, but that he is against what Hamas did, uh, capturing Israeli civilians to lead to this moment. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you. You're very welcome. To Wisconsin now, where new districts could be on the way for its state legislature. Statewide elections in Wisconsin are typically very close, but Republicans hold big majorities in the state house. Democrats say that's because of advantages that GOP lawmakers have built into the political maps there. Those maps were the subject of oral arguments at the Wisconsin Supreme Court yesterday. Wisconsin Public Radio's Rich Kramer is here to fill us in. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So Democrats criticize the state's maps for being gerrymandered, basically, to give the GOP an unfair advantage. But my understanding is that that was not actually the focus of the hearing. That is correct. In deciding to take this case up quickly, a majority of justices on the state Supreme Court left that question aside for now. Instead, they focused on two others. One, whether the voting districts for the state Senate and state assembly violate Wisconsin's constitution on an issue called contiguity. That's basically whether all parts of the district need to be within one boundary. And then the other issue was whether the court violated due process standards last year when the conservative majority picked maps drawn by Republican lawmakers, even though they were vetoed by our Democratic governor. Now liberals on the court have a 4-3 advantage. Is there something that stood out to you from these arguments? Yeah, the uh, attorneys and justices spent a lot of time talking about the definition of the word contiguity, what it means, what it meant to the framers, but also there was some sniping between justices on the bench. Conservatives say that if this is about the shape of districts, why wasn't the lawsuit filed sooner? They accused lawyers and even some on the court for kind of being in cahoots on that. And uh, that question led to one notable moment, this from conservative justice Rebecca Bradley. Everybody knows that the reason we're here is because there was a change in the membership of the court. You would not have brought this action, right, if the newest justice had lost her election. That newest justice is Janet Protasewicz. She won a really high-profile election in April to tip the balance of the court for the first time in 15 years. 
So what, um, what, 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 did she have a role in the testimony yesterday? Yes, Justice Protasiewicz was pretty quiet overall, but just her being there has been a bit of a political lightning rod in the state. Conservatives have called on her to recuse herself from this case because she called the current Republican maps in Wisconsin rigged while she was campaigning. She's refused to step aside, but some Republicans have threatened to impeach her as a result. All right, and before we let you go, would you say a bit more about why these maps matter? Sure, big picture. Well, uh, some of the liberal justices on the court during these oral arguments have already been talking about how they might draw new maps for next year's elections. That could lead to a big political shift in the state. Wisconsin is known as a, a purple state, but Republicans have a near supermajority in both houses of the legislature. So breaking that legislative stronghold could lead to some major policy changes, including a repeal on a ban on most abortions in Wisconsin. That is Wisconsin Public Radio's Rich Kramer. Rich, thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. Do you remember when air travel was glamorous, exciting, even fun? No? Me neither. Long lines, uncomfortable seats, overpriced food or none. But there was a time when flying wasn't like this. So how did we get here? Ganesh Sitaraman is a law professor who studies and writes about regulation. And he's the author of a new book called Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Good morning. Good morning. So are you traveling this week or do you know better? I am traveling this week and uh, have already had one delay. Oh, oh boy. Okay. Seems like everybody has an air travel horror story. So what makes flying as miserable as you've written about? I think there's really two things. For passengers, it's all the little things. The baggage fees, the smaller seats, the delays, the cancellations, the connections. And at the level of the industry and the country, we've had bailouts and bankruptcies and taxpayer support programs. And all of these things are really the function of public policy. And the biggest public policy choice in the history of the airlines was the decision to deregulate them and truly remove the guardrails that Congress had put on them for many, many decades. I think it wasn't the argument that this would uh, make things better, that there would be price competition, that the airlines would compete not just on price but on service. How come that didn't happen? That's exactly right. The vision of the deregulators was that everything would be better if you just let airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and to charge whatever they want. But after a very short period of competition, what we ended up with was more concentration in the airline industry, less service to a lot of small places, cities and rural areas, and instead of a race to the top on service, a real race to the bottom, where now the seats are smaller than ever before. You know, it's interesting is that, that, you know, talking, though, about the bailouts, I mean, one of the reasons that this is so infuriating to the public is, you know, people aren't stupid. They know that significant tax dollars have gone into bailing out the airline industry at some point. And it's, as briefly as you can, like, how how do we reconcile those two things? I mean, are is it like a kind of more like a utility or is it more like, I don't know, something like a private car that somebody owns that you happen to use? How should we think about this? Well, for much of American history, we thought of airlines as a utility because they're an essential transportation infrastructure for so many communities, for economic activity, for tourism, and for travel. And that shifted with deregulation for people seeing them, airlines, as more like any other business. Hmm. And I think the bailouts really prove that they're more like a utility because they're too important to fail. And that's why Congress feels the need to rescue them. When you have a major crisis, if we end up without an airline industry, it would be devastating for the country. So they are a special business. They have special privileges. 
And I think they should have some obligations, too. So what will it take to fix it? And is there any energy to do that or any sort of public will to do that? Well, I think we need to have reforms that focus on three principles. And the first one is no more flyover country. We should have airline service to lots of places, including small cities, all the different regions and rural areas. Second is no bailouts, no bankruptcies. We should have a reliable airline industry that is doing well in the good times, but is not going to go under or need taxpayer support in the tough times. And, and third, fair and transparent pricing. We've just had a system that's had a proliferation of different types of prices, extra fees, and dynamic pricing, where the prices change depending on when you buy your ticket. I think we could simplify all of that. Is, and is there any will to do that as briefly as you can? Well, my hope is that because there are people who fly in every state in the country and in every congressional district in the country, that if people make their voices heard, tell their elected officials, we could actually change this. That is Ganesh Sitaraman. His new book is called Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. You can read it while you're waiting for your flight. Professor Sitaraman, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll look at the role the White House played in the agreement reached between Israel and Hamas to pause fighting in Gaza and release hostages. And stay with 90.9 WBUR all day for the quickly changing news out of Israel and Gaza. We'll have the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. I'm Scott Tong. It all started 100 years ago with a mouse. Mickey first graced the silver screen in the Disney animated short Steamboat Willie. The first cartoon with moving pictures and sound to go with them. It was jaw-dropping. It was, dare I say it when I talk about Disney, it was magic. Disney at 100. Next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Rain and gusty winds this morning. Showers will taper off early this afternoon. We'll have a high in the low 50s. Tonight, temperatures fall to around 40, and it'll be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, a sunny Thanksgiving with a high in the low 50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, now playing exclusively in theaters. From Paycom, Paycom guides employees to find and fix payroll errors before submission in the Paycom app. Information about employee-guided payroll is at paycom.com NPR. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life, After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
An Israeli strike in South Lebanon Tuesday killed two Lebanese journalists covering fighting across the border between Israel and the Lebanon-based militia Hezbollah. That's what network executives have told us. According to the International Committee to Protect Journalists, at least 53 journalists and media workers have now been killed since the war in Gaza began, most of them Palestinians. NPR's Jane Araf has more from Amman Jordan. On Tuesday, the El Mayadeen network ran a black banner across a corner of its screen as it announced the death of its reporting team. Channel director Ghassan bin Jiddu, his voice breaking, told viewers that correspondent Farah Amar and cameraman Rabih Ma'amri were killed in what he called a targeted Israeli drone strike. The Israeli military said it was targeting a weapons launch site in a dangerous area with active fighting. It said it was reviewing the reports of the deaths. Israel last month banned al Mayadeen from its airwaves, saying it was affiliated with Iran-backed Hezbollah. Another Lebanese civilian, Hussein Akil, was also killed in the attack near the town of Tir Harfa, about two miles from the Lebanese-Israeli border. At the network's headquarters in Beirut, Al Mayadeen correspondent Fatima Qasim said she and her colleagues would not be deterred by the killings. It was an attempt to silence the media, she said. Israel's assaults on civilians, she continued, will not stop, but we will also not stop. Both the network and colleagues at the scene say both Amar and Ma'amri were wearing body armor that clearly identified them as press. Amar was 25 and her cameraman, Ma'amri, 44. Colleagues said the network believed both were far enough from the border not to be in danger. After the attack Tuesday, Hezbollah said it struck targets in northern Israel in retaliation for their deaths. A Reuters video journalist, Assam Abdullah, was killed while covering Israeli attacks across the border last month. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. The U.S. has been dealing with high inflation for several years now, but it is nothing compared to what Argentina is facing. Inflation there is in the triple digits. Prices have been going up at an annual rate of 142 percent. Argentina's president-elect has a pretty drastic plan to fight high inflation. He wants to get rid of Argentina's currency completely and replace the Argentine peso with the U.S. dollar. NPR's David Gurr is with us now to explain more about this. David, good morning. Hey, Michelle. This is quite fascinating to me. So why is Argentina's president-elect advocating for this? Well, Javier Millet is a libertarian and an economist, Michelle, who campaigned on some pretty far-out proposals. He said he wants to get rid of Argentina's central bank. Millet plans to make deep cuts to the government and to government spending. This is a point he drove home at rallies by wielding a chainsaw. And Millet wants to dollarize the economy. He wants Argentina to adopt the U.S. dollar as its official currency, as you said. The country's economy is in a shambles in large part because of that hyperinflation you mentioned. As you said, the U.S. has had high inflation, but it's come down recently. It's now just north of 3%. The annualized rate of inflation in Argentina is more than 40 times that. So people there are hurting. Almost half the population is living in poverty. And Argentina owes billions of dollars, Michelle, to the International Monetary Fund. Would Argentina give something up by doing this? 
Absolutely. It would give up a substantial amount of control over its economy. Argentina would lose a lot of autonomy. That's according to Marta Cruz Zuniga. She's the chair of the economics department at the Catholic University of America. Losing monetary policy. And that is like losing one of your two arms. It would be like losing one of your arms, she says, because Argentina would suddenly find it difficult to accomplish some very basic tasks. Michelle, many countries use their currencies to manage their economies, and Argentina would be pretty powerless as the U.S. dollar gets stronger and weaker. It's not like the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, would make decisions with Argentina in mind. That's just not how this would work. It's also likely Argentina would become less competitive worldwide. With dollarization, prices would go up, so would salaries. So the goods and services Argentina exports would become more expensive. I think many people may forget about this, but has the dollarization has actually been tried elsewhere. So how has it worked in practice elsewhere? Yeah, we've seen it in Panama. It dollarized its economy in 1904, and Ecuador got rid of its currency called the Sucre in 2000. Now, back then, Ecuador was also facing sky-high inflation. That country set an exchange rate and everybody traded in their money. The country had a lot of dollars in its reserves and it used those to buy back all the sucres. And we did see inflation in Ecuador tick down to single digits. And today it's a little higher than 2.3 percent, according to the IMF. Now, Michelle, I do want to note Ecuador and Panama, these are much smaller economies. Argentina's economy, despite all the difficulties it's faced over the last three decades or so, is the third largest economy in Latin America, right behind Brazil and Mexico. So I think you're telling us that Argentina's size would be a big challenge. How so? There are a lot of doubts Argentina could pull this off, especially at this scale. That makes it even tougher and riskier. It would take a lot of time, again, because Argentina's economy is so large. And a country has to dollarize carefully because credibility is so crucial. You don't want to cause panic domestically or in global markets. That would make dollarization in Argentina very difficult. But Scott McKinney, who's an economics professor at Hobart and William Smith, says there's an even bigger issue at play here. Right now, Argentina is lacking something really fundamental. To dollarize, you need to have the dollars. And Argentina does not have the dollars you got to have dollars to dollarize. And because this country, Michelle, is in so much debt to the IMF, other organizations, McKinney says, he just doesn't think it would be easy for Argentina at this point in time to borrow even more money to do this. That is NPR's David Gura. David, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, including the latest on the upcoming four-day ceasefire agreed to by Israel and Hamas. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, a new movie highlights composer-conductor Leonard Bernstein's ties to Tanglewood in the Berkshires. It's 829. WBUR supporters include AMS and the Weather Channel, presenting The Power of Precipitation, here, scientists discuss whether we're getting more or less snow, what a winter El Nino means, how ocean temperatures affect our weather, and more. December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause in fighting. During the truce approved by the Israeli cabinet, Hamas is to release 50 hostages taken during last month's deadly assault in southern Israel. In exchange, Israel will release 150 Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. Brett McGurk is the White House coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. It's four days of a full uh, humanitarian pause, so all the fighting stops. Uh, We're likely to see a real surge of humanitarian assistance. Uh, And then for every additional 10 hostages that Hamas can release, of course, there's about uh, well over 200, uh, the, the pause will continue. He was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. In a White House statement, President Biden praised Qatar and Egypt for their efforts to secure that pause in fighting. South Korea says it will suspend part of a military agreement signed with North Korea five years ago in response to Pyongyang launching its first spy satellite. Sam Altman is returning to OpenAI as its CEO. The announcement from the company came last night, days after Altman was fired by the maker of ChatGPT and subsequently hired by Microsoft to lead an AI research team there. OpenAI says Altman is coming back to a new board, replacing the one that fired him last week. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A push to legalize the use of plant-based psychedelic substances in Massachusetts could soon be in the hands of voters. Organizers behind the effort say they've gathered enough signatures to get the initiative on the 2024 state ballot. The measure would legalize the use of psychedelics in therapy and allow people to grow things like psilocybin mushrooms at home. A temporary family shelter in Boston is getting a boost in funding thanks to a first-of-its-kind grant. The Catholic Charities Boston Shelter opened yesterday. It has room for up to 27 families. The money comes from the United Way of Massachusetts Bay and its newly established Safety Net Shelter Grant Program. It'll help fund bedding, meals, staff, and security for the site. The state police forces in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine are launching a joint effort tonight to combat drunk driving. The search for impaired drivers will last through the holiday weekend. Massachusetts State Police Captain Catherine Downey is reminding people to wear seatbelts, choose a designated driver, and call a rideshare if needed. Last year, we lost 33 lives in Massachusetts on the roadways during the month of November and 284 people were seriously injured just in that month alone. That's too many. Recent federal data show that nearly a third of all fatal car crashes in Massachusetts involved some form of drunk driving. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins are on the road tonight to play the Florida Panthers. Meantime, the Celtics will be home tonight to face the Milwaukee Bucks. Showers this morning should dry up by this afternoon. Highs will be in the low 50s, around 40 tonight and mostly cloudy. It clears up overnight for a sunny day tomorrow. It'll be in the low 50s on Thanksgiving Day. It's 47 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Among the hostages that Hamas has been holding is a three-year-old American girl whose parents were killed on the October 7th attack. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has been following the effort to release Abigail and the other Americans. Franco, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. So can you just tell us what went into reaching this deal and what specific role the Biden administration played in these negotiations? Yeah, it was a lot of work. You know, the Qatari government served as kind of the main middleman for the sensitive talks. Egypt also played a role. But the U.S. was very involved right from the start. U.S. officials told us that Qatari officials approached the White House at the beginning, soon after October 7th, about working on a potential deal to release the hostages. You know, the sides established a channel to work on it, and negotiations were long and intense for five weeks. One U.S. official described negotiations to us as being extremely excruciating. The president spoke with the American families of hostages. He also spoke regularly with the prime minister of Israel, as well as the emir of Qatar. You know, he released, Biden that is, released a statement last night welcoming the deal and thanking Qatar and Egypt for their assistance. And I'll just note, it was actually the same channel that they created that led to the release of the first U.S. hostages last month of Judith Rannon and her daughter, Natalie. It was actually their release that American officials told us gave them the confidence that the channel worked, but also that the Qataris could deliver. Do you, do you, would you just briefly remind us about the contours of the deal for people who perhaps have not been following it? Yeah, yeah. Hamas is expected to release as many as 50 women and children in an agreement. You noted the, that there was a three-year-old toddler from the United States, American. Uh, there were also two other Americans who are expected to be part of the group. And then the deal also involves the exchange of some 150 Palestinian prisoners um, and a four-day pause in the fighting to allow this to happen and get more aid into Gaza. And, you know, obviously the the condition, the well-being of the hostages is, is paramount here. But it has to be said, Biden has been dealing with a lot of domestic pressure about his handling of the war. Do you have a sense of whether this might relieve some of that pressure? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, the pressure has been really intense. You know, a recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll found that 55% of Americans said they disapprove of Biden's handling of the war. And a great deal of that pressure was from Democrats, especially young people in the party. So I guess we'll see, you know, it's early and the deal has yet to go into effect. Um, fair to say that the administration is aware of these kinds of numbers? For sure. I mean, and we've seen the president kind of adjusting his message as conditions in Gaza worsen. You know, he's talking more about the need to protect Palestinians. He's been calling more aggressively for a pause in the fighting. And look, this deal does that. So that could also be relieve some of that pressure. The administration emphasizes that it's not only, you know, to release the hostages and to stop the fighting for several days, but it will also allow hundreds more aid trucks into Gaza. But I will also note that, 
you know, Israel is very adamant that this is not going to stop the war. The government of Israel says they've made clear that the fighting will resume and they say they will continue or the fighting will continue until the rest of the hostages are home and that Hamas is eliminated. That is White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. A standoff at OpenAI, the world's leading artificial intelligence company, has come to a close for now. After several days of chaos, the company's ousted CEO has made a return. NPR's tech correspondent Dara Kerr is here to tell us more about it. Good morning. Hello. All right. Very unusual. OpenAI CEO, he was fired and now he's coming back? Yes. Yes. This is no ordinary situation. Over the last five days, we've seen corporate tussling of the highest order. There's been surprise firings, mass employee protests, and definitely a fair share of backroom negotiating. Sam Altman is the CEO and co-founder of OpenAI, which is the company that makes the popular chatbot ChatGPT. He's basically the de facto spokesperson for artificial intelligence. And last Friday, to the surprise of almost everyone, he was fired from the company by its board of directors. And now he's back. Late last night, OpenAI posted on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, that the company had reached an agreement for Altman to return as CEO with a new board of directors. Minutes later, Altman himself wrote on X that he, quote, loves OpenAI and is looking forward to returning. Do we know anything about how this all happened or how this all came about, this agreement all came about? Right now, not much is known about what was going on behind closed doors, but there was a very public face to this battle. Employees of OpenAI wrote a letter to the board of directors on Sunday night. In the letter, they threatened to quit in mass if Altman wasn't reinstated as the CEO. They also demanded that the board of directors be dissolved. And at first, the letter was signed by about 500 employees, or roughly two-thirds of the company. But eventually, that number grew to nearly all employees, about 97% of the people who work at OpenAI. At one point, hundreds of them even flooded X, repeatedly posting the line, OpenAI is nothing without its people. And it became clear that the company couldn't afford to lose all of that talent. Additionally, one of the board members, who's also a co-founder of OpenAI and previously supported firing Altman, he started to backpedal. His name is Ilya Sutskever, and he also signed that letter. He said he regretted his participation in the board's actions and would do everything he could to reunite the company. And as for now, he'll remain an employee at OpenAI, but he will no longer serve on the board. Okay, so all these board shenanigans and, and so forth, do you have a sense of how this will affect OpenAI's work, and really more importantly, how it will affect the public and the future of this you know, technology and how it, how it affects all of us. Yeah, so there is another major player here. It's Microsoft. Microsoft owns a 49% stake in OpenAI and has invested billions of dollars in the startup. After Altman was fired last week, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announced the company was hiring Altman to lead its AI team. Microsoft also said it would hire all those employees who are planning to quit and protest. So now Altman is obviously not joining Microsoft, but the partnership between the two companies appears to be stronger than ever. And this really gets to the crux of this Silicon Valley battle. It's about this burgeoning new technology and who gets to control how it's created. That is NPR Tech correspondent Dara Kerr. Dara, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the current down market for art. A sculpture by Andy Warhol failed to sell last week because bids didn't reach the minimum amount sent by the auction house. And in your forecast, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says we only have a few more hours of this rain. Well, it's a wet start out there. Steady rain with some heavier elements are moving through. Reduced visibility, puddles, wipers on full blast at times. Leave plenty of extra time to get where you need to be if you're hitting the road and leave extra space between you and the car in front of you. The steady rain is done around noon with just some leftover afternoon showers. Rainfall totals around one inch for most of us. The wind, an issue on Cape Cod, the islands, and Cape Ann. 45 to 55 mile per hour gusts result in pockets of damage through the early afternoon. Sunny and breezy tomorrow with a high in the lower 50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Executives at Waltham-based Boston Dynamics are backing a statewide bill to ban robots from carrying guns. If passed, the bill would make mounting a weapon on a robotic device illegal, with certain exceptions for law enforcement. Boston Dynamics vice president says weaponizing robots harms the robotics industry as a whole. A decades-old banquet hall and dim sum restaurant will reopen in the heart of Boston's Chinatown this winter. The China Pearl closed in February 2020 before COVID restrictions. The owners say they used the time to make renovations. An exact reopening date has not yet been announced. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 29th. buacademy.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Bradley Cooper's movie Maestro hits theaters today in New York and L.A. Cooper directed and stars as 20th century conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein. Cooper filmed Maestro at actual locations from Bernstein's life, including Tanglewood and Lennox. WBWAR's Andrea Shea has more on his connection to the Boston Symphony Orchestra's summer home. Oh, that's... Uh... Well, no. <laughs> six. No. Eight. BSO staff got a thrill when Maestro's teaser came out in August. It features Leonard Bernstein and his wife Felicia bantering with bucolic shots of Tanglewood in the background. It's two, darling. Two. It's two. Like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a pond. So that last shot in the trailer is just taken right over the wall here. BSO director of production Jake Morshell worked with Bradley Cooper's crew in May of 2022 as they filmed at Saranac, an estate with breathtaking Berkshire views up the hill from campus. It was an entire village of 
people and cars and trucks and equipment. Bernstein's mentor Serge Kusevitsky summered at Saranac after founding what was then called the Berkshire Music Center. His protege spent countless hours here throughout his life. Morshell grew up hearing about Bernstein from his father, who was a BSO cellist, and has a story of his own. When I was a child, a toddler on the lawn at Tanglewood, uh, apparently Mr. Bernstein almost ran me over in his car that he was driving across the lawn. Cooper captured that lush lawn and the theater where Bernstein led master classes. These spots could have been recreated elsewhere or with CGI, but Morshell says Cooper's goal was authenticity. I think it's the buildings, the history. You can practically hear the music when you are walking across campus. The trees of Tanglewood are just beautiful. And anyone who's been to Tanglewood will see those scenes and immediately know that that's where it was shot. That was a very smart decision because Tanglewood's almost a character in Bernstein's life. For 32 years, archivist Bridget Carr has been caretaker of Bernstein's BSO legacy at Symphony Hall. She pulls out boxes filled with old concert programs and photographs. The guy knew how to dress. The striped jacket, the bow tie. The cigarette. The cigarette. Carr says Bernstein stood out in 1940 when he became a member of the first conducting class at Tanglewood. The Boston-raised musician was also the first to lead student orchestra concerts. And here's Bernstein instructing the BSO during a rehearsal in 1949. Keep the vibrato going as long as the note is held. Bernstein's star skyrocketed with his passionate conducting and groundbreaking compositions, including West Side Story. But, Carr says, he always made his way back to Tanglewood. He started his career there in many ways, And he kind of ended his career there. His last concert he conducted publicly was at Tanglewood in 1990. Carr remembers seeing Bradley Cooper at Tanglewood's Bernstein Centennial in 2018. The writer-director-actor calls Maestro a love story, not a biopic, about the conductor's complex 27-year relationship with his wife Felicia. It was informed by Bernstein's daughter Jamie's memoir, famous father girl. Both unfold how Bernstein's extramarital affairs with men that his wife was aware of affected his family and his identity. My parents had this really unusual marriage and they genuinely adored each other. That's Jamie Bernstein. There was total authenticity in their connection, but it was complicated and then it got more complicated later on. Her father's dalliances fuel a pivotal scene in Maestro that involves Tanglewood, where she and her siblings worked when they were young. I was there one summer in 1970, the summer when I heard the rumors, which all of which comes up in the film. So we all have this first-hand experience of Tanglewood. Bernstein says Cooper worked closely with her family while making Maestro, and she appreciates his deeply researched, unvarnished portrayal of their father and mother's struggles. He was just so committed to achieving this essential level of authenticity. That's what led him to decide to shoot at Tanglewood, as well as to shoot in our own family country house in Connecticut. 
Now that Maestro is out in the world, Bernstein says it's exciting and emotional for her family to see Cooper's portrait of their parents' marriage on the big screen. The adjective we keep turning to is surreal. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Maestro opens in Boston theaters on December 1st before streaming on Netflix on the 20th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas. And why Dire Straits musician Mark Knopfler is selling more than a hundred of his guitars. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause in fighting, with Hamas releasing 50 women and children being held hostage in return for Israel's release of Palestinian prisoners. Despite warnings from the U.S. and South Korea, North Korea says it has successfully launched a spy satellite for the first time. And people are remembering the legacy of President John F. Kennedy, as today marks 60 years since he was assassinated. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. A rainy morning should dry up by this afternoon. It'll be in the low 50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston. There's power in employees threatening to quit en masse. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Friday, the nonprofit board that governed OpenAI, maker of ChatGPT, fired its much admired boss. By Sunday, Sam Altman found a plum job at Microsoft. By this Monday, OpenAI employees were fixing to quit en masse. Now, today, Wednesday, we can tell you that Altman is now going back to OpenAI as the boss. The question of why this all happened lingers, Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. OpenAI says it's still ironing out the details of Sam Altman's return, but it will include changes to the nonprofit board, which governs the for-profit arm of the company. Among those reportedly stepping down, Ilya Sutskever, OpenAI's co-founder and chief scientist, and an advocate of a go-slow approach to artificial intelligence deployment in order to ensure safety. He helped oust Altman, then reversed himself. Here's Sutskever at a TED Talk just a few weeks ago. In addition to working with governments, and helping them understand what is coming and prepare for it. We're also doing a lot of research 
on addressing the technological side of things so that the AI will never want to go rogue. Altman wants rapid deployment of AI tools while also advocating for safety measures. I think we're probably less safe today. Christian Hammond heads the Center for Advancing Safety of Machine Intelligence at Northwestern University. He says the tension between commercialization of AI tools and the push for safety was at the heart of Altman's brief ouster. I'm not a, by any means a doomsayer with regard to AI, but the very issues that individuals on the board were promoting are the issues that are being now ignored because they pushed hard and they pushed with panic. Those issues, Hammond says, include data transparency and ensuring AI systems are not biased or abusive. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Note that one of the reasons OpenAI has this unusual nonprofit board structure governing for-profit operations was to better balance safety concerns about a dangerous technology with the demands of commercial success. The CEO of Binance, the biggest cryptocurrency exchange, is leaving after pleading guilty to felony money laundering at the company. It's part of a larger $4 billion settlement with the feds over Binance operating illegally and busting economic sanctions. The Treasury said Binance helped Hamas, al-Qaeda, and others move money around. Treasury Secretary Yellen calls this the largest such settlement in the department's history. But Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, is surprised the penalty is not bigger given the enabling of terrorism part. People in the crypto world are breathing a sigh of relief because they were worried about the possibility that Binance would be put out of business, that the biggest crypto exchange would be gone. And that hasn't happened. So crypto lives on. Binance said in a statement that it made misguided decisions as the exchange grew and that the deal acknowledges the company's, quote, responsibility for historical and criminal compliance violations. Markets, S&P futures are now up a quarter percent. Dow futures are now up about a tenth of a percent. Crude oil down four percent now, below $75 a barrel after the oil producers cartel OPEC postponed a planned meeting on production and prices this weekend. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on think or swim. More at schwab.com. You know, in a little eBay auction, if bids don't reach the reserve price, the thing doesn't sell. That happened last week at the auction house Bonhams in New York, and Andy Warhol's sculptural piece didn't sell because bidding didn't hit the 600 grand reserve. Art critic Blake Gopnik wrote a big book about Warhol. He spoke to our Sabri Beneshore about the auction that bombed. So let's just describe the sculpture real quick so people can imagine it. It's called Bomb. It looks kind of like a bomb, torpedo. Looks exactly like a bomb because it actually is a bomb. It was a 100-pound practice bomb that the Air Force used. It's painted silver, and it actually is uglier than it even looks in photographs. It is not a pretty object, which is why I think it should have sold for tens of millions of dollars, because it's actually closer to the heart of what matters about Andy Warhol's art than anything colorful and pleasant and poppy would be. We're going to get to how much it should have gone for in a second. But before the auction, Bonham's estimated Bomb would get somewhere between six hundred dollars and $800,000. It did not get even to that minimum. So how do art auction houses come up with these estimates? And then really, how are bidders coming up with the bids they're willing to put in? The world of the art market, and especially of auctions, is very strange. It's, it's really about psychology more than anything else. 
the people who work in auction houses are often trained as art historians, but their real expertise is in psychology. And I have to admit that the brilliant auctioneer slash psychologist at Bonhams were right in realizing that this bomb by Andy Warhol might not appeal so much to collectors. In fact, it ended up appealing less to anyone than they thought. And that's why it didn't actually sell, that the highest bid was only $480,000, which for Warhol is not much money at all. Why do you think it should have gotten more than it did? You know, the real heart of Andy Warhol's art, the thing that drives it is its use of things that are found around us in everyday culture. It's really the air to Marcel Duchamp's famous 1917 sculpture called Fountain, which was nothing more than a store-bought urinal. So this is, like that, something that Warhol just took from the world. That's what we call a ready-made in art history. It's, I think, Warhol's only actual ready-made. The pop art movement, which Andy Warhol kind of headlined, made original art accessible to the masses conceptually. But at this point, it's not particularly financially accessible. Uh, what do you think you'd say about how his art is valued today? Warhol's a funny creature because I won't pretend that he didn't love money. I mean, most of us love money. He loved it maybe a little more than some people, but no more than a lot of people do. Um, but he was also really interested in undermining normal capitalism, undermining the art market. I think he'd like the trouble this work causes. Warhol, people don't realize this because he's now such a famous artist. He was really a troublemaker, like Marcel Duchamp. He wanted to cause problems for people. And this bomb is a classic example of that. Blake Gopnik, art critic and author of Warhol, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be on the show, Sabri. Marketplace's Sabri Benishore with Blake there. We are from APM, American Public Media. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. That's on Monday, December 19th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's a dark and stormy morning with gusty winds and rain expected to last through about noon. Then mostly cloudy today in the low 50s. Skies stay overcast tonight as temperatures fall to around 40. Then it clears up overnight, giving us a sunny day in the low 50s for our Thanksgiving tomorrow. It's 47 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.